I came across this fable. It was a fable about a hunter that was chasing two foxes. And then when the two foxes came to a cross in the road, they went different directions. And the hunter kind of just stood there in the moment, kind of not being able to decide which one to go after. And in the end, he lost both. This episode's story belongs to Yoke. All her life, she's aced most of the things she set out to do. She got good grades. She snagged a government scholarship to study at a top university in America. This streak of excellence continued into her work. As an economist with the Singapore government, she drew up big plans for the country. Ten years in, her talent and efforts were recognised. She made it through a selective leadership development program. The public service leadership needs first-rate talent and leaders in all these professions. It's an achievement given only to those marked out as the cream of the crop within the civil service. These are the people primed to be your future leaders for anything from urban planning to our transport system. And I think in the months that followed that, uh, achieving this quote-unquote milestone, I think I was slightly surprised not to be happier. Maybe, and yeah, so maybe there were some expectations that I would feel fulfilled or happier in some way, but, and then the slight surprise that I didn't, and kind of then thinking about like what that really meant for me. Yeah. And all that thinking culminated in a resignation letter. Yo quit her job without a single plan. Here's where the story begins. Welcome to Story of Your Quarter Life, the show where we feature stories about feeling lost in your 20s and 30s. The experience was a disaster. And finding ways to build a meaningful life in Singapore and beyond. And the next day she replied and she forgave me. How long did you wind up not working? Uh... I wouldn't call it not working, but the of like kind of not being committed in a quote unquote proper career uh, would have been about one and a half, two years. Part one at the photocopier. Many of us dedicate long hours to our careers. When we're not at work, a lot of time and headspace is spent thinking about and anticipating the issues of work. On Sunday brunches with friends, the problems of work often bleed into the conversations. So what do you do with your life when work is completely removed from the equation? Do your worries just disappear? What does all that free time do to a person? Yoke was about to find out. It was actually really a period of uh, confronting myself with the question of when there's nothing that you have to do, what do you do? And 
I didn't see myself kind of quickly jumping into another job. Uh, although like some opportunity to pursue that did come up. Yeah, somehow it didn't feel right. Um, I didn't want to just quickly jump onto the next thing out of anxiety more than clarity. So I don't think it was a typical move in the sense that I had the next landing figured out when I left. I ended up taking on a lot of uh, smaller things. I was working in a crepe shop for a while. A friend uh, had a assignment doing a lot of Xeroxing for digital documentation of a lot of paper files. Yes, so that uh, makes it sound more glamorous than it really is. It basically, you're just standing in front of a photocopier and zapping all the documents and scanning them. And tomes of, tomes of it, like a lot. Yoke says that there were times she got bored and antsy. There were worries about what she was or wasn't doing with her time. Before that, life was characterised by just like everybody else, I think, or almost everybody else, um, busyness, right? Like there's always more work than uh, you have time to do. So suddenly there's so much time uh, and not really have things that you have to deliver and do. Uh, it was a very like unsettling experience, I would say. Because then I realised like, how much of my own identity is tied up in my productivity, right? Being busy and doing a lot of things. I think for me, the recurrent theme during that time was uh, what does it mean to be instead of do? And who am I when I'm not doing? While all that self-inquiry was going on, there were also questions from those around her. You know, you run into a relative or someone texts you asking for a contact or a favour. And then... How are you? What have you been up to? Simple questions. But suddenly they became quite difficult to answer for Yoke. I think I remember the huge discomfort of being asked that question. And a lot of it because... There is this kind of expectation of having left behind a quote-unquote like, good thing, right? Then the only legitimate next thing to move on to has to be something better. And to kind of defy that, like not be able to be in a position to say that, oh yeah, you know, I'm on to something even greater and better, was like hugely discomforting, I feel. And I think, uh, aside from people who were close to me, who kind of knew more about like the experience that I was going through and kind of holding space for that to take shape and take form uh, while it was being uh, shaped and formed, uh, it became very, very disconcerting to kind of bump up with acquaintances. I was very grateful for my, like the moments that I would stand in front of the uh, photocopier just having things to photocopy. Like, 
I don't know, it kind of was a very new relationship with work that I was forming at that time, you know. Because before, work was always like, oh my god, it's like the curse, it's like this um, burden maybe, like an expectation that you have to kind of uh, deliver and fulfill. But uh, in that time, like there was also a new relationship forming with work in the sense of how it is something to be grateful for in that sense of uh, having something to contribute and bring into fruition and completion. It's a gift we maybe put in positions where we can be in partnership with that work to kind of bring it to a different place. That is kind of a mystery in the sense of like it being present in your life and you kind of playing a part in it, in partnership. And so the photocopier became a kind of refuge, like a shelter that a lost traveller stays under when they're caught in the rain. So this begs the question, how did Yoke get lost in the first place? We'll retrace the steps after this short break. And we're back. Part 2. How did we get here? To understand why Yoke left the civil service, we need to dig into her past, into her psyche. When she returned from the US after university, Yoke had an interview panel for the leadership development program that we mentioned earlier. She didn't get in. And I remember just kind of flunking the interview. And to my young mind at that time, it was like, wow, like, kind of like maybe the first time failing like a major exam. Initially, after that uh, interview, which I didn't make, I felt like, oh my god, it's like the end of my life and career, right? Kind of making it up really big in my mind. But of course, life goes on. So um, I then actually started work at one of the stat boards as a competition economist in the newly set up Competition Commission of Singapore. And I, I thought, okay, I would practice my trade, I guess, and learn how to be an economist. Several years into her job, her boss at the time invited her to try again for the program. I decided to go for it, um, and that kind of then started the series of rotations across different uh, jobs and different uh, ministries. Okay, the process for entering the program mid-career is a little bit more complicated. Instead of an interview, candidates were put on rotation to another ministry or statutory board. Then they have to take a test which officially places them into the program. If they pass the test, what follows is another rotation, followed by another interview, and then yet another stint somewhere else. Oh, and while all of this is happening, candidates are also constantly evaluated for their performance. For Yoke, the entire process took five years. So after getting the, like, you confirm that you're part of this program, 
actually what okay I know you, you you call it a milestone but what's the outcome it's like a promotion or you get to go to a ministry or standpoint of your preference uh, I think that's a good question what it really means technically as a scheme what it really means is that you are identified as part of a select group being identified and group for leadership positions uh, within the civil service but I think maybe personally what it meant for me was a lot more about validation validation of being good enough which then I guess connecting then that back to how come I didn't feel happier and I'm surprised that I didn't feel happier was that getting this actually did not give me that validation because perhaps like nothing external can ever really give you that validation uh, that you are looking for. I think I really did not have a very clear sense of direction or that personal sense of what I wanted to achieve. Like I didn't have very big ambitious goals. Quite honestly, the path towards uh, becoming a civil servant was very much determined by a much younger dream, which was that since I was very young, I always wanted to go and study overseas. By the time it came to junior college and for choosing the university and my path ahead, uh, I basically took up any option that would offer me an overseas scholarship in order to fulfill that much earlier dream of going overseas uh, to study. Stepping on the path to becoming a civil servant was kind of incidental to that dream of studying overseas. So I don't, I will admit that now looking back, I don't think I thought very much about like having any noble, lofty goals for like wanting to become a civil servant. Bingo. Now we know how Yoke landed on the civil service career track. All those years of being the best and building up a pattern of excellence for everything in her life. That came from a different desire. The real dream here was this desire to study abroad. But where did that come from? The answer lies even deeper in the past. I was born in the Netherlands. Across my siblings, I'm the only one to be born outside of Singapore. And it was because during that time, my dad was actually working in the Netherlands in a Chinese restaurant in a small town called Belt. I think that became kind of part of my own story in terms of like my own legend or story as you call it. Having grown up always with the sense of how the world is a much larger place than what I can see and perceive in front of me right now. And also the continuation of my dad's story in a way of how as a young man he went overseas to a new place where he didn't speak the language and really just uh, had an adventure, I would, I would say, in some ways. Then I think another factor was actually also me reading a lot when I was a kid. And a lot of the stories I read always had characters who would be going away somehow, <laughs> right? So from Annie Blyton, the naughtiest girl in school, when she would travel on the train with a tuck box of scones and chocolate cake to her boarding school. Um, and there was James and the Giant Peach, where he got rescued from his like horrendous life with his two aunts and crossed the ocean to go to New York City to start a new life. 
So I think that allure of um, the promise of life that is unexplored and unknown always held a lot of uh, allure for me, I would say. The stories we grow up with and the stories we tell ourselves. They can inspire dreams and shape our lives. Those stories took Yoke all the way across oceans, from Singapore to a foreign land. From that dream emerged the path that Yoke went on next, into the policy research and the many job rotations. But what do you do when your dream has reached its expiry date? You're listening to Story of Your Quarter Life. Coming up, we look at what you do when you let go of a dream. The solution might just be flipping crepes and living an alternate life. Stick with us to find out. Welcome back to Story of Your Quarter Life, the show where we feature stories about feeling lost and finding yourself in your 20s and 30s. We've arrived at part 3 of today's episode. Part 3. Grounding down to reality. Really, I think one, one or two years after I had started working, and it was one of those New Year's resolutions things, and uh, maybe this is the story of a, a New Year's resolution that did uh, get fulfilled and year after year, right? Um, because I remember it was the beginning of the year and there was an article in the newspaper about uh, beautiful people and the work they were doing. A bit about Beautiful People, the organisation which Yoke just mentioned. Beautiful People is a movement working with youth from at-risk families. Mentoring is at the heart of the cause. By fostering these mentoring relationships, the idea is that youths will have the support and resources they need to discover themselves and realize their dreams. Since encountering that news article, volunteering has become a fixture in Yoke's life. And in trying to change the lives of these youths, her life changed too. Because I was a mentor, I became one of the trainers for the program. And then within the beautiful people kind of platform, there were also a lot of opportunities for me to just try out different things like uh, planning uh, organizational retreats and strategy planning meetings and stuff. Yeah, so I think it was all like a platform for me to kind of gain and develop my interest as well as uh, develop some skills actually in those areas. And through that, that was where I think I really got into the individual and development space. Now, going back to Yoke at her civil service job. A job that spun out of a dream of studying abroad. And now, that dream was coming down to its last breaths. Uh, so I guess uh, there was this feeling that I was running two parallel lives uh, at the same time. Around this time, actually, I came across this fable. And it was a fable about a hunter that was chasing two foxes. So the hunter is chasing the two foxes, and then when the two foxes came to a cross in the road, they went different directions. And the hunter 
kind of just stood there in the moment kind of not being able to decide which one to go after and in the end he lost both of course what the story is is less important than kind of what i took from it uh, which at that time i was like hmm uh, interesting right uh, these two foxes kind of like the two paths that i was uh, living in my life at that time uh, with my day job in the civil service and my other involvement volunteering and in the kind of human potential and development space i would say yeah and i think that made me take that pause and kind of want to decide like which path uh, i wanted to go on next if i had if, if it came down to it and i needed to choose in some ways i think maybe people around me could have been a little bit more perceptive to my situation than i really was i remember a quite touching message from one of my bosses actually and someone that i respect uh, a lot and really enjoyed working with so i guess that meant a lot in the sense that he just uh, told me that uh, well it may well be that you could do more outside of the civils than uh, outside of the service than within i think it was maybe a case of feeling like maybe i had run the course with one path and there was a lot as yet unexplored in this other path that i kind of thought like okay you know um this seems to be a time now or never that i would like i can still take the risk and embark on uh something new and i think i was quite aware in terms of assessing my situation at that time that i in some ways had the luxury of having that choice which maybe a lot of my peers uh, may not have had i was single uh, didn't have a lot of commitments and no family or children in that sense uh, to have that financial commitment for i kind of felt like eh, um maybe i am put in this position of being able to have the luxury to choose and uh, try out something different so that again i took as a message to hey maybe you should just um make use of this position that you're in that you still can choose to just uh, try something else with that yok let go and left her career in the civil service That marked the beginning of what she calls her desert period. A dry spell where she had a lot of time to reflect on work and what it meant to her. To recap, in this time, Yok digitized documents on the photocopier, mentored news, and did some teaching. She stuck around in the desert for a while before the next thing came along. That turned out to be graduate school at Harvard University. Before that though was an interesting encounter of serving crepes. So one of the other things is actually also about during this whole period, right? Uh of unfoundness uh is actually also this other question about what work is worth what and whose eyes. So because one of the things that I took on during this period was actually really just working in the shop at a crepe shop. 
and this is not just like some management associate or whatever thing was like I was just on the floor <laughs> right like cashiering making crepes and whatever and so I remember the morning uh, that I was on my shift at the crepe shop I think it was probably that very morning that I received uh, my notification of uh, acceptance uh, into grad school uh, and so in that moment, I had acquired this new identity as like this uh, soon-to-be grad student, right? That very afternoon, going to the trip shop and encountering this lady that uh, that communicated like to me in in a way that she was uh, speaking to me, looking or not looking at me, uh, that she felt like I was less than her, and for me in that moment, kind of that irony of that whole situation, right? Um, because uh, just statistically, I can sort of assume that this lady has... And, and that, that, that of, co- of course, is also a social illusion, <laughs> right? That she probably didn't go to grad school. Um, and that she, in turn, was kind of like imposing this idea of me as being less than her just because I was, in that moment, being the cashier and service staff to her as a customer. The world was just kind of very like, jumbled up in my head, kind of like me dealing with the indignity of that moment of how she was treating me and at the same time at the back of my mind being able to pull up that other identity as like this uh, soon-to-be grad student and looking at her back, you know Yeah and how like ultimately both things are actually fake mm-hmm. and unreal because part of it was actually also me confronting myself with the question, right, that um, how would I have felt differently if I hadn't gotten that letter that morning? And part of it was actually confronting myself with the question of do I really think I'm better than her because I got into some school, you know? And so at the same time, I'm questioning why she thinks she has the right to think she's better than me. Like, do I you know, mm. similarly kind of uh, have this thing about thinking I'm better because of some school I'm going to? Encounters like these force Yoke to search around for what's real. Figuring that out meant grounding down to earth and seeing things as they really are. In other words, being objective. That period was really a time of getting in touch with reality. In the sense of kind of establishing my own sense and connection with what is real as opposed to what were the illusions that I had been holding on to and part of me was aware that it was the death of these illusions which I had been living with and which made me so comfortable and it was the death of these illusions that was actually truly the discomfort. One way I can describe that is actually if you look at reality what's real I'm alive, I have a roof over my head, I, I'm alive, right? That's the fundamental in terms of uh, that piece of reality. What is being uh, threatened and at risk is kind of this uh, illusion or this uh, social concept of myself as being successful, accomplished, having a solid label that people can understand and kind of maybe respect or think it's impressive. So the shattering of that social reality and that illusion is what is really disturbing. 
Whereas if I grounded back on reality, the reality that I am alive, I am not technically really in threat. That was that period, I think, of separating, being aware of, I think, uh, all the illusions that I was living with and kind of connecting with what's real. Defaulting to the objective truth can be an antidote for many problems. It lifts off the lens of emotions that we may be using to view a situation. But does that mean that we reject emotions and social constructs entirely? We have one final anecdote to share from that time before we head into our epilogue, and it's one that addresses this conundrum. We'll begin with one real solid fact. In 2016, Yoke headed to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She remembers one particular moment vividly. Uh, so I think other than the material content, interactions with the lecturers, professors and fellow students, I think in terms of my own growth in my journey and in terms of how I see the world, I can pinpoint one moment uh, in grad school when I kind of came to a reconciliation of the two sides in terms of the reality of who I am that I'm talking about versus this social illusion and concepts. There was one class that was called Music Night that was part of an adaptive leadership class that I was taking. In that class, there was somehow this uh, quote that kind of talked about that relationship between ambition and aspiration. In it, ambition being defined as what we take and what we get uh, from the world uh, in order to further what we want to achieve and do. Aspiration was defined as what we are yearning and desiring to give of ourselves in contribution to the world. The quotation basically talked about how the two are fires that feed one another. And I remember being very moved la, by seeing that because I think it reconciled attention for myself that I hadn't quite identified in those words, which was that is that reality of me with my aspiration of what I want to put out into the world. And there is this cloak and layer of illusions uh, that come with like basically whatever progress and achievements uh, that I've accumulated and gained for myself. And I think prior to that moment, I was rejecting one and kind of swinging in full, the pendulum swung to the other side of kind of like me thinking I needed to shed all of that ambition and really just focus on what's real, the aspiration aspect of it. And feeling very stuck in a way because rejecting and denying the ambition part also meant that I didn't have that fire tool to feed the aspiration. That moment of realizing that whatever I had accumulated is and can be used to fuel the aspiration in service of creating what is it that I wanted to create instead of me valuing that in as of itself kind of broke that tension for me and it kind of made it make sense. That is a way of thinking that I have carried on with me from that time in the sense of not choosing binarily 
non-binary. <laughs> non non-binary. Thinking <laughs> yeah. in a non-binary way. Yes, yes, yes. So it doesn't We are wrapping up this episode with our epilogue of Yoke's life now. Stick around for some thoughts we have for some of you who may be thinking about a career change. Okay, so right now I'm with uh, Bold at Work, which is um, an organisation set up to work with uh, young people and organisations on conversations and skills in the future of work. How long have you been doing this? Uh, so both at work uh, officially opened its doors here uh, under the Void Deck in Chinese Garden in June 2017. Mm. Yeah, so it's been about two and a half years. Both at work is set in a Void Deck at Chinese Garden. It shares a space with Smooched, which is this welcoming, cosy cafe that sells the best dairy-free ice cream. They even have nut cheese pizza, which I've not encountered anywhere else in Singapore. Bold runs regular workshops and monthly bazaar pop-ups around things like career design, or even quirkier stuff like dressmaking, composting, and communal hot pots. They even design a board game around adulting and navigating your life goals. It's a lively place. Full disclosure, in June last year, I participated in Bold at Work's Design Your Life Workshop, or DYL as it's called. One thing that came up a lot for me when thinking about a career change is this sense of compromise, having to choose between passion or money, or between stability or challenge. You start feeling very stuck. So it doesn't have to be, oh, uh, go into one where it's kind of like fully in contribution with others and it doesn't matter if I make only pennies versus like going to this like high paying uh, job but then they learn the desire to kind of make impact in the way that I want to. Is there a creative way to have them not just uh, balance out but actually really empower one another? For people who are going through this tension where you feel that um, there are two or more things that they want to explore but they might have to give them up to focus on one thing. Do you have any suggestions for what people could try to do? You mean people feel like they are forced to choose between one another? Or feeling this kind of stuckness between two things or even more things that they have in their lives? Mm. Yeah, I'm wondering if I should say this. Uh... <laughs> because part of me wants to go like, oh, don't be rash and do something like me. Don't. <laughs> um... But that's it, you know, maybe that is the journey some of us need to go on. At this moment, I guess I would say that developing parallel lives may not be a bad way of ensuring that you have, some, have a wealth of different experiences to inform your choice and a wealth of different networks and resources. Um, and just a different sample of what life could look like. If you're feeling stuck or unhappy, time to hit pause. Look around you. Play around with something new. Build a prototype. Paint your own picture of what a happy life looks like to you. 
Here's what Yoke has to say. Because I think um, even before stuckness, there's one other stage, which is blindness, right? Which is that I only see what I see. I think if we are blind in the sense that everyone around me is kind of like me, right? Uh, espousing the same definition of what it looks like to succeed and uh, kind of on similar life paths and we're on the red race and kind of competing with one another. Then there is a certain blindness to possibility, right? So I guess uh, I would say that exposure to parallel lives gives you even that option to be stuck in the sense of that because to be stuck you kind of have to be able to see uh, different things, right? And that in itself, I think the resources that come with uh, seeing and embedding yourselves in parallel lives also gives you the resources to get out of that stuck mm-hmm. as you continue to live into your parallel lives. I think one thing that I found very useful about the DIY workshop is that we had to do these prototypes, right? In a way, they are kind of like small bets that you take where you've lowered the risk. I mean, if you fail, then so be it. So, you know, like just going out and talking to someone to understand it better, to just see what is out there. Yes, thanks for sharing that. I think um, a new kind of distinction came up for me as you were sharing that, which is actually kind of creating uh, your prototype relative to your risk appetite at that time, right? So I'm relating that back to the point where I said that, oh, you know, maybe my appetite for risk at that time was a little bit bigger which is why I could take that huge prototype, I guess, of like leaving and exploring. And so maybe for some other people in similar situations where they have that uh, space and room to take on such a big prototype, then yes, maybe that is kind of what's uh, opportunity for them at that time. And then for someone else, it might be taking a small prototype which might involve just an evening after work because my appetite for risk because of whatever circumstances and where I'm at. That is the right size prototype for me. Still, you might spend too much time exploring. Sometimes, you just have to take that leap into the unknown. But I'm also wondering, you know, uh, whether there might be people who kind of always stay stuck in the small prototypes Mm. because they are not ready to confront how much room for risk they are really willing and able to take. You know, and then they stay spinning their wheels and the small prototypes and then right. maybe kind of telling themselves, hey, nothing seems to be working out. What's coming up for me is actually also this uh, willingness uh, to be honest with ourselves in terms of it's not just the action of taking the prototypes, but an honest inquiry and quest into what is it for me right now that I'm ready for and what is the next step I need to be taking. And only we can tell for ourselves, lah. Because and if we, we if we're honest with ourselves, so it sounds like then maybe also we need to not let the doing become the escape. Thank you, Yo, for making it through the desert period and living to tell the tale. Special thanks to Ruo Yi and the Bold at Work team for connecting us and helping us discover this story. Thanks also to my amazing friend Lydia Lee for more context on the Public Leadership Development Scheme. 
Bold at Work is an organisation set up to work with young people and organisations on conversations and skills in the future of work. You can find their website at boldatwork.sg. That's B-O-L-D-A-T-W-O-R-K dot S-G. On Instagram, search for at boldsg. Story of Your Quarter Life wants to make more stories that will land in your life at the right time to inspire you. Tell us some of the topics that you worry most about as a young adult in your 20s or 30s by emailing us. Email us at storyofyourquarterlife at gmail.com. That's quarter as in QTR. It will really help us out. Episodes will come more sporadically as we're on the road, so be sure to subscribe to get notified whenever new episodes are published. And share this podcast with any of your friends who might need it. This has been Erin on Story of Your Quarter Life. You can hear more stories from us out soon.